We've come to the second panel on changing lives and changing world, worlds. And I would like to introduce the chairperson for this panel and let him do the job of introducing the panel and the three wonderful speakers. Um, the chairperson for this panel is Mr. Alan John. He is my other boss, the director of the Asia Journalism Fellowship. He spent 35 years at the Straits Times as a writer, editor, trainer and mentor. So if you look at the, biographic, uh, the, the, the biographical notes, you will see the titles of two of the books that he has written. And the titles of the books are as sensational as he is. So, Alan, welcome. Yes. So, um, Cheryl, Dewi and Prem, Please join Alan on stage. Thank you. Richard and Yonan, stop talking. Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> All right, these guys. <laughs> anyway, hello everyone. I'm very excited to be here, so I'm not going to, to go to that uh, podium and say anything to you because I'm ready to listen to the speakers already. Okay? And we have three wonderful speakers here today. Uh, we've got Cheryl from the Philippines, Devi from Indonesia, and Premesh from Malaysia. I'm not even going to introduce them to you because you have to open this piece of paper and read about them, okay? It's all there. But, but it's, why is it wonderful, okay? And Cheryl is going to go first. But, you know, at the, at the AJF, we have uh, fellows that come to Singapore from, from different countries every year. And I never get tired of asking the fellow from the Philippines, to tell us the story of the Ampatuan massacre that happened in, in the Philippines. Uh, you call it something else, the Maguindanao. Uh, it yes, it happened there. And uh, it's a terrific tragedy. It's a horrific story. And after you hear it, you wonder why anyone would be a journalist in the Philippines. Okay? Um, and Cheryl will tell you about some exciting things that are going on and, and why journalists are not, not just uh, coming to journalism still, but doing new and interesting things. Um, Davy over here, like me, Davy is here to prove to you that there is life after the Straits Times. <laughs> <laughs> and for many years, we worked together at the Straits Times before she went on to the Jakarta Post. And, uh, or the other way around. Or the other way around, okay? Jakarta Post and then Straits Times. But uh, Indonesia, you know, we... Indonesia is our big neighbor, uh, a massive number of Muslims in, in Indonesia. Uh, we hear about, uh, you know, pulls towards the, the conservative right all the time. And Devi is doing the most exciting work with her magazine, Magdalene, you know. And um, she's come to Singapore at a time where we are all uh, in the throes of, of uh, debating this whole question about whether homosexual sex should be a crime or not a crime. Uh, and it's a sensitive issue and the two sides never meet. But, but over in, in Indonesia, Devi is writing these stories about, about persecution and prosecution of, of uh, people in the LGBT community and others. You know, so I'm, going, I'm excited to hear this. Uh, 2018 has been a momentous year for our other neighbor, Malaysia. 
you know, and um, so who could have thought in January of, of 2018 that in May of 2018 there would be a new government in, in uh, Malaysia? Who would have thought that, you know, 92 is the new 50? You know, how wonderful is that? Suddenly you have a prime minister who's 92 years old and all of us feel young again. Oh, wonderful. But if it was a momentous year for Malaysia, it was even more momentous for Malaysia Kini and Premesh who's over there, uh, who set up this, uh, this news portal in nearly 20 years ago, 20 years next year, uh, ahead of its time doing, you know, doing stuff that we, the rest of us didn't get round to for another 10 or 15 years, you know, um, going online first, uh, coming up with videos when the rest of us weren't watching them yet, uh, and, um, and then fighting against you know, continuous harassment and, uh, and the worst kind of political uh, pressure, having you know, the police raid the newsroom and take away computers and stuff like that, and landing themselves with lawsuit after lawsuit. And Prem would not have been here today if he didn't have a date in court yesterday where uh, one of the cases against uh, him and his editor-in-chief, Stephen Gunn, was dropped. So we are really happy that you are here today. Uh, okay, thank you. So enough for me. We're going to start with Cheryl over here. Cheryl, just tell us that story from the Philippines and then we will move right along. And everybody else, please start writing down your questions now. <laughs> you know, because I'm calling out names afterwards. <laughs> Go ahead. Thanks very much, Alan. Um, good day. I'm very happy to be here, and thanks very much to um, the AJF and Carol Soon specifically um, for giving the, me the opportunity to join in the conversations today. So I'll be sharing my observations on the emergence of transmedia solidarities between journalists, artists, and academics in this precarious time in the Philippines. But first, allow me to give a little bit of context. Journalists have taken a valuable role in reporting issues of marginalized communities that require them to openly probe and criticize state and non-state agents. We often know of events from the first encounter of stories by journalists. One, in the contemporary Philippines, there is the war on drugs campaign of the state, which the president himself proudly stated to continue to be relentless. It has been reported that some 4,229 suspects were killed by police in the context of acknowledged operations, and another 22,000 plus plus deaths under investigation that may be linked to drugs. It is through the tireless work of journalists that these deaths are reported, although relatively obtaining much less coverage now. There is also the martial law in Mindanao, which continues until the end of the year. UN Special Rapporteurs released a statement saying that the indigenous communities of Mindanao are suffering from the island's ongoing militarization. Thousands of indigenous peoples have already been forcibly displaced by the conflict and have seen their houses and livelihoods destroyed. And of course, there are ongoing issues of land grabbing in indigenous ancestral lands that alternative media such as Kilab Multimedia and Alter Media actively and continually report on. But reporting the most pressing issues can pose real risks for journalists in the Philippines. Said to be one of the countries in our region enjoying press freedom, this problematic notion is quickly contradicted by the fact that we are ranked as among the most dangerous countries for journalists. To be exact, the IFJ reported in January 2018 that the Philippines is the most dangerous country in Southeast Asia for journalists. Globally, we came in sixth on the list. 
The IFJ also reported that 146 Filipino journalists had been murdered since 1990, the second highest number in the world, next only to Iraq. The Ampatuan massacre that Alan was just mentioning had 34 local journalists killed. They were covering the convoy of a political candidate and were shot dead. That was in November 2009, their bodies buried in the mountain using government backhoes. This is considered the deadliest single attack on journalists anywhere in the world and happened not in the context of war or armed conflict, unfortunately, during supposedly peacetime. So far, unfortunately, none of the alleged masterminds, members of a powerful political clan apparently, have been convicted. During the dark days of the martial law period, the media have also been repressed and suppressed and mass arrests of journalists took place. Return to the present time, the media in the Philippines continues to come under attack both online and offline, raising serious concerns about the safety and security of the country's media workers. Journalists are accused of bias and sensationalism, for example, not reporting the truth, and worse, receive death threats for themselves and their families. Just a few days ago, Inquirer Media Bureau reporter Julia Lipala became the subject of hate posts and death threats on social media after the publication of her story about the gruesome death of seven indigenous men from the hands of the military. Accusations of her being a certified paid columnist spread like wildfire on social media, and among the comments are threats to Alipala's life. These risks faced by journalists are also set in the landscape of some public distrust towards the media in recent years. It is in this context of threats against journalists, alongside the struggles of marginalized communities that continually need to be reported, that has set the landscape, it seems to me, for both organized and serendipitous partnerships between journalists, artists, and academics that help in circulating stories for public attention and engagement, and which I call transmedia solidarities. This cooperative practice where artists and academics draw from reports of journalists, recast and translate these into stories and creative works accessible to multiple publics may help temper the risks for journalists while at the same time re-emphasize the value of their reports. Transmedia storytelling pertains to the process of telling a story across various media where integral elements of a story are dispersed systematically through multiple channels, and each medium makes unique contribution to create a unified, coordinated experience. This concept has often been used in the context of entertainment, where a franchise like Star Wars can be consumed in film, game, comic, books, or apps, with each rendering contributions to the power of storytelling. I borrow the idea to think about the emerging solidarities that I will share today. Example one. A first example is media reporting on the deaths related to the state's campaign against illegal drugs. Since the launch of the campaign, reporters and photojournalists courageously covered the deaths. In the reports, the dead's face were often wrapped in masking tape, as if, to quote a historian and analyst, to dehumanize them. But one death in particular caught people's attention. 17-year-old Kian de los Santos was killed by policemen, one of the casualties of the war on drugs. Report after report, journalists were trying to probe how exactly Kian was killed. Along what became crucial was a CCTV footage in the bottom, capturing the events of the night that Kian died, and which at many points contradicted earlier reports from the police accounts of what happened. Along with the CCTV footage, writers of the Philippine Center for Investigative Journalism interviewed Kian's family, and under its PCIJ story project, collaborated with a children's book author, Wenka Hiles and an illustrator. 
The book used media reports on the death, but also additional interviews with his family to craft the book's narrative. It showed not just Hian's death, but attempted to humanize it to show that what his dreams were as a child, how he was a son, how he was a classmate, friend, or student. It was in this collaboration process that we get multiple facets of the realities about the impact of this policy to a human being and to his family. The book was launched in social media and printed copies are now being distributed for free to teachers, schools, and community outreach programs for educational purposes. It won a National Book Award and is a case of planned collaboration between journalists and artists. My second example is RD3RD, an adaptation of Shakespeare's play, Richard III, but set in the contemporary context of the current leadership. The play added new scenes and dialogue to create a whirlwind of images that connects Richard III and his murderous rise to power with present-day Philippines. The play used actual video footages from media reports on the deaths resulting from the war on drugs. The reports served as backdrop of the story, that which contemporizes the play. The play makes a frightening wake-up call on why the people allow tyrants to rise. The audience would be struck at the end of the play to realize, I was struck myself, to realize that my seat carried the name of the dead reported by the media. Directors directed by artists Anton Juan and Ricardo Abad in collaboration with a professor of English and drama studies and borrowing from media footages, this is an example of an indirect collaboration, a case of cross-referencing and reappropriation of the work of reporters and rendering them in another powerful form, the theater. Another example is this work, a content analysis of over 5,000 news reports on the deaths related to the same campaign. I am personally involved in this study. So a collaboration of three universities in the country, the project analyzed the contents of news reports on the same issue with the intention of obtaining patterns to better understand the circumstances of the deaths. When these patterns surfaced, a website was created to visualize the patterns and map out the deaths across the country with the help of the Columbia Center for of the Stabil Center. In turn, so when the drug archive, so the drug archive is the website which now helped visualize the aggregated data that we managed to obtain from analyzing the news reports. After which, artists look at the visual patterns and alongside the works of photojournalists, converted the data into a multimedia exhibit that highlights the impact of this anti-illegal drugs campaign. Originating from individual reports by journalists, this collaborative effort has tried to make sense of patterns of reports and retell, retell, retell the story of the impact of the campaign using the aggregate. The multiplicity of forms, academic reports, graphs, maps, and then later on multimedia installations, photo essays, and films render the reports for the consumption of different kinds of audiences. Similar efforts of multimedia exhibits are staged in universities. Exactly today and right at this very moment, a photo exhibit with multiple performances and screenings of related films is open in my university. It utilizes the brave work of photojournalists and combines them with further research by academics on the victims' families and retelling of their stories by poets alongside the live performances of a student street dance group, as Sri says in the morning, to mainstream the issue and att attract millennials. The intention here is to bring the reports in another form closer to students, faculty, and the academic community. Just to talk about the same initiative in the context of alternative media, the second case concerns the issues of indigenous communities that have been actively covered by alternative and indigenous media over the years. These involve killings of IP communities, aggressions caused by large-scale mining, sudden enforced disappearances, 
and encroachment of their ancestral lands. Inspired by actual events reported by the media, a film, Tupug Imatui, tackles the indigenous community of the Manobos struggles against environmental plunder and the militarization of their families. The movie, inspired by a survival account of an elderly lumad in Talaingod, captured by soldiers, based on media reports, has won awards as one of the best films in 2017, a milestone for this Davo-made film on indigenous people. Co-produced by Kilab Multimedia, an alternative media outfit in the country, the film was shown initially only in Mindanao, at the South Island of the Philippines, but then taken up by a national film festival and shown in theaters across the country. This helped the story to be retold to a much broader audience, aided with the compelling visual and audio components. And now I wrap up. In summary, these collaborations form as a result of collective concern of multiple sectors to tell the story of underprivileged communities. The stories originate from media reports and then probed further, cross-analyzed, or rendered in new forms through planned or serendipitous collaborations among journalists, artists, and academic institutions. Last week, I was in a conference where a speaker lamented that civil society, and that includes the media, in the Philippines is dying with the major civil society organizations being run by senior citizens, she co I quote. I disagree. I think it has just taken new forms. In this time of risk for journalists in a country, it has proven crucial for multiple, even non-media actors to take these reports and render them in multiple forms. The creation of these transmedia narratives not only facilitates appreciation of the story through powerful storytelling, it facilitates the reach of broader, perhaps more diverse audiences. At the same time, it may help temper the risk for journalists as it diffuses the accountability towards the story. Now, the story is not just told by a reporter. The story is told and retold by a community of storytellers. In writing this presentation, I realized, however, that these collaborations could in fact extend to also retell and find solutions to the dangers experienced by journalists in the country, expose the difficult conditions of their work, raise advocacies towards unresolved killings amongst their ranks, and draw attention and solution to the traumas that they face regularly. I argue that these transmedia solidarities may have potentials for addressing some of the urgent needs of journalists too, beyond the urgent needs of those they cover. I'll end here. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> thank, you thank you, Cheryl, for, for showing us how journalism can be just the start of more storytelling and different kinds of storytelling and in exciting ways too. Uh, I'm gonna to hand over to uh, Devi now. And I just want you to know that just before Devi came to Singapore, she, was, um, she won a prize. The, the Alliance of Independent Journalists in Indonesia, which we know as AJI, uh, awarded her uh, its prize, the SK Trimurti Award, which is given to uh, an activist journalist who plays an important role in advancing press freedom, freedom of expression, gender equality, and the public's right to information. Uh, I asked Devi to tell us why she went from the safe Straits Times to starting a newsroom where every single member of the staff is at risk every time they put out one of their stories. And, and I'm ready to hear that. Thanks, Devi. Thank you. Thank you, Alan, for that uh, very generous introduction. 
Um, I will tell you about why I moved from the safety of Straits Times to what I'm doing now. Not directly, there was some uh, gap in between, but we'll, we'll get there in slides, one of the slides. But anyway, um, everybody, um, I would first uh, like for you to um, imagine that you are a young woman, and um, I think there's some uh, grammatical errors and typos. I was working on this one, <laughs> I just, I was still jet lagged, so forgive that. Anyway, ignore that. But so I would like to, for you to imagine that you are a young woman who is smart, independent, critical, um, who have opinions about issues, and you know, like to read, like to learn. But when you're looking for a media that are targeted, for media or publications that are targeted for your demography, um, they don't treat you like the smart woman that you are, like the independent, you know, the critical woman that you are. Instead, you are treated as a one-dimensional thing. You are uh, a body that needs to be fixed. Um, you are obsessed with fashion and you are a woman who must please her men. Like, um, this, is, this would be one of those, the typical cover of those uh, women-focused publications. So, um, the thing is, it's not just women-focused publications that are not treating the women right or not representing women right. Um, the non-women publications like um, Rolling Stone, which is one of my favorite magazines, um, also not doing very well in that department. Um, even when women have a lot of things going, women who are very talented, they are still treated as a sexual being, hypersexual being, as you know, opposed to their male peers. So um, in Indonesian media, sometimes it's even worse. Even when a woman is dead, they are still sexualized. These are uh, a couple of um, examples of two headlines, a typical headline from uh, a new, an online news site. And uh, one of them, the first one says, the body of a pretty woman was found in a ditch. Um, pretty is a word that is often used for women uh, in media coverage, whether it to describe a model, a CEO, a governor, an athlete, even a dead woman. Um, and then the second headline says this, the, a woman's body was found without underwear, which is pretty weird because that has nothing to do with the rest of the story. So um, that just shows that represent, representation of women in uh, the Indonesian media, most of them, are still uh, very poor. The news framing is still very bad. Um, often it perpetuates um, problematic uh, issues like rape culture is sexualized women and there's still, the language is still sexist and there's still a lot of stereotyping, gender stereotyping. So it was um, on this landscape that five years ago, um, um, a couple of friends of mine who are journalists and, um, and I uh, decided to start Magdalene. So we co-founded it in September 2013, and we started it as an, actually at the time it was only an English language publication um, that was focused on women. And um, we thought that we wanted to have um, um, something, an alternative media that would provide or that serve women who were underserved by the current media offering. 
Um, and at the time I was um, a freelance journalist, a freelance writer and editor. I had just, I had quit from the Straits Times a couple of years before. I'd been working for the Straits Times and before that, uh, for the Jakarta Post for about 14 years before that. And I was feeling pretty exhausted. I think a lot of people at that age would, you know, would find this when they come to a point where they feel their job was no longer, no longer had any meaning to them. And I was thinking that, no matter what I did, it didn't make any impact. Um, but, you know, so what I did was, just like a lot of Gen Xers, um, I quit and became a yoga teacher for a while. And I was also doing writing, of course. But at some point, I missed journalism again. So um, that's when we decided to create Magdalene. So the name Magdalene came from, as you would guess probably, Mary Magdalene, who is um, a biblical female figure who for centuries has suffered uh, from being misjudged and misunderstood because of patriarchy. Um, in a way, we think that this is the, uh, an experience of every woman who has ever tried to assert themselves in a very patriarchal world or society. So we are here to reclaim the narrative on women, to represent the experience of women in, um, in the most inclusive and authentic way. Um, these, are, these are some of the headlines of our stories. Um, Magdalene for us serves two functions. One of them is as a, a publication that produces journalistic outputs like uh, news reports, um, in-depth articles, uh, investigative stories, and um, you know, to raise awareness on issues that, that are important but are not being um, covered by the mainstream media. They are neglected by most mainstream media. The other function is as a platform for people to share their stories and perspective through personal essays, through op-ed and columns. So these are voices that would normally never find a place in um, an atypical mainstream publication. So um, as you can uh, see from some of the headlines, um, they can be quite controversial or taboo in Indonesia, in the Indonesian context. Um, and amidst an increasing, alarmingly increasing, um, uh, or increase of Islamic conservatism in Indonesia, we actually never shy away from, um, um, you know, we never shy away from shining lights on issues that matter, that are seen as sensitive or taboo in Indonesia, especially when the stake is, is high um, for some people. Um, and these people could be members of minority groups, and they could be racial, religious, or sexual minorities. Our coverage of LGBT is quite um, critical, and I think um, we are probably one of the, uh, at least in the beginning, we were one of the first uh, publications that were uh, very critical with our, with highlighting persecution against LGBT. Um, so when we first started, we had aimed for um, slightly older uh, readers, sort of like my age, but maybe younger. Um, we had aimed for some, you know, 20, late 20, 30 something readers. But as we progressed, we found out that our readers are quite young. Actually our readers, about more than half of our readers are 20, uh, 18 to 24 years old and followed by 25 to 34. And 80% um, of them are women, but 20% of them are men. So this is good for us because in order to beat patriarchy, we need to work with men. 
Um, and most of our readers say in our readership uh, reader survey that they like our content because uh, of the topic, the hard-hitting topic that we cover. And those include um, uh, sexuality, social issues, and religion. Um, I think it makes sense that um, we can capture the young audience because they're at the age when they are um, most critical about their, the, their environment, their situation. Um, they uh, start to have big questions about life, about social norms, and the way traditions and religions impact their lives and positions in society. And they're also the people most affected by gender-based discrimination and increasing conservatism in Indonesia, all the excess of uh, patriarchal society. That is why we also collaborate a lot with communities and groups on gender-based initiatives. And one of them, one of the most important ones is uh, uh, a campaign to raise awareness on sexual violence and the pervasiveness of sexual violence in Indonesia. In Indonesia, every three hours, or every two hours, three women experience sexual violence. So in 2016, we uh, conducted, along with um, a, supporting, a support group for sexual violence survivor, Lentera Sintas, and uh, Kim, or, uh, change.org, we conducted um, an online survey that was participated by 25,000 respondents, and the result was that uh, more than a third of the respondents have experienced sexual assault. And um, of the 93% who actually uh, experienced this, who survived this, they never uh, reported it, or they never even tell anyone about it. So um, this survey, the result, helped um, mobilize women's group to actually push for um, the anti-sexual violence bill in Parliament. The bill has been around for some time, but Parliament has been delaying it for many years because they think it wasn't a priority. Um, now, uh, sexual violence is a personal issue for me because I am actually a survivor of uh, childhood child sexual violence. So, and I have written about the issue several times, and one of them was in a long essay that I wrote a few years back. And um, the impact was very, in a way, even though it's sad, but it's also empowering because uh, it was followed by a lot of people coming up to me or started writing for Magdalene about their own experience. And a lot of the time, it was the first time they ever opened up. So um, this, to me, is the most powerful impact of narrative journalism. So we have a few more impactful stories. And one of them was this, um, uh, this is kind of interesting, this um, a dating app, it's called Ayo Polygamy. It's a dating app for married men to find um, second, third, or fourth wife. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't very known, it was not well known at the time. So we make, uh, we send one of our um, uh, reporters to go undercover to become a member of this app. And uh, a month later, she wrote a story and it became viral soon. And it was picked up and followed up by a lot of media, including international media like the BBC. So, um, so this proves that while one half of Indonesians are getting harder in the way they practice religion, are getting more conservative, the other half is also pushing back. You know, the other half wants an Indonesia that is progressive, and so they are fighting back against this wave of um, you know changes that would put them back, you know, uh, or uh, trying to put them back in the domestic realm, especially the women. So I guess this slide is where I start talking about our struggle, which means money problem, um, and we have that. Um, 
But uh, Magdalene is a very tiny company. When we started it, we only spent uh, 1,500 US dollars, so that's not much. And um, Hera and I worked on it for almost a year, just the two of us curating stories, editing stories, writing, and all this other stuff before we started taking in um, interns. And many of these interns, uh, they started as intern, but they never left because they love us so much and they're hardcore feminists. So they're like, yeah, we're, we're gonna stay even though they barely get paid. Um, so now our team is very small, probably less than 15 people, uh, depending on how many interns are working. Um, and Hera and I are still not getting paid because this is still self-funding. Um, and that's the problem because I'm not, I don't come from a business background. So um, I'm struggling with that part of my job. But we are currently in the process of um, getting investment. Um, and what is also help, what, what helps also is that we are a small company. We don't have an office, so our, we can control our expenses. And um, our uh, monetizing or our business plan is very flexible. So it's not just advertisement, which obviously is hard to rely on when, we're, when you're uh, uh, that small. So we also, um, we, um, we have other ways of monetizing like events, book publishing. We have an e-shop and uh, we have a consultancy service, which is, which is right now the biggest part of our revenue. Another challenge um, that we find is that um, the increasing use of the criminal defamation law and information and electronic transaction uh, law on freedom of expression that are being used to uh, suppress differing views. Um, now, freedom of the press is legally protected in, in, in Indonesia, and the government is pretty much hands-off when it comes to freedom of the press. However, there has been a continuous um, uh, attack or violence against uh, on, on uh, the press uh, done by uh, groups or uh, community or mobs of people. And um, usually these are related to uh, content related to religion. So because our content, a lot of our content uh, deal with that, we question some of the religious teaching that are uh, perpetuating harmful practices or uh, gender discrimination. Uh, that kind of puts us in, uh, expose us to the, to the threat. But you know, knock on wood, nothing has happened to us so far. We have, of course, negative comments. We have trolls. I get trolls all the time on Twitter, which is why I I don't really exist on Twitter, but you know we're we're fine with that as long as we can still you know um, exist. At the end of the day, we are still struggling in all sense of uh, in all aspects of the work. But when we think of how much we can contribute to the conversation, and um, in the digital space as well as offline, and also the lack of alternative media that talks about the issues that we talk about. And when we think of the, the challenges to mainstream gender equalities and progressive values, we know that there's no other way but to keep pushing forward. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Devi. So now I'm going to just sit back. I'm going to sit back and watch with awe and admiration as this man tells us the story of Malaysia Kini. Okay, because it's it's the story is just too bizarre. Okay, you know, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, you might have looked at Malaysia Kini and say, oh, maybe they won't last another year or something. You know, last year you might have looked at Malaysia Kini and said maybe they won't last till the end of 2018 because good grief they had to put out a call for donations from their readers to for a legal defense fund because they had so many lawsuits against them and, and uh, lawyers to pay. You know, so would these people survive or not? So, Prem, 
has been involved from day one with his good friend, um, grew a newsroom from, what, half a dozen people to 90 people a few months ago, and now they're hiring again. Um, what an amazing story. Start, uh, start. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, just speak from here? Sure. Hi, uh, good afternoon. Thanks so much, uh, Alan, uh, for the nice introduction. I think the, uh, the word bizarre kind of resonates with Malaysia right these days. Uh, we're a country of many uh, interesting developments. Never a dull moment in Malaysia. Uh, we lost a couple of planes. Uh, now we have a 93-year-old uh, prime minister. Um, you know, um, today, actually yesterday was the 20th anniversary of uh, Anwar Ibrahim's arrest in uh, you know, September 1998. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, Mahathir put Anwar behind bars. This year, Mahathir got Anwar out of bars. Um, you know, 20 years ago, it wasn't clear whether Anwar would succeed Mahathir. Today, again, it's not clear whether <laughs> Anwar will take over from Mahathir again. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, um, it's been a long process in, in, uh, in Malaysia, but we're very glad that Malaysia Kini has been, has been part of it. Um, uh, May 9th this year was our election. Malaysia Kini was in the thick of things. Um, we had a team you know, deployed all over the country and we weren't really sure which way it would go. So, uh, you know, elections closed about five o'clock, and, uh, you know, the counting started that night, and we thought that, okay, you know, we've been disappointed before, there was no change, so we thought we kind of expected the same. Uh, but by 8, 8.30, you could see the results were getting delayed, not really being announced, which was a kind of a signal. Um, and about nine o'clock, you could see that you know states in Sabah, Sarawak, uh, you know, the opposition was doing well. Uh, they were doing well in Peninsular Malaysia. Some key seats were going to um, um, the Pakatan Harapan. And about 9:45, with nearly uh, you know 1.5 uh, million readers accessing Malaysia Kini every minute, um, they blocked our website. The uh, multimedia mm, uh, commission issued an order to block block Malaysia Kini. So uh, we, we, had things, we had things ready to go because we expected something like that to happen. So we instituted, um, you know, we issued new um, uh, URLs, uh, places to access information. Um, so, you know, the traffic went down a bit and it started to come up. But we knew that if that, you know, they issued an order to block, the, block Malaysia Kini, then something was really on the cards. Um, uh, Mahate went uh, on television around, I think around 11, 30, 12, claiming victory and asking the election commission to release the results. Um, and the results started to trickle in. Uh, the entire mainstream media uh, were, were kind of silent. You know, they were just repeating results which are already known, you know, very, uh, you know, not really showing the total count. But what's happening, and Malaysia Kini became the only media uh, reporting the count. So you know, it kind of trickled up, trickled up. And about, uh, at about 2.15 uh, at night, uh, the magic number was 112. So they had about, uh, we had about 108, four seats to go. Uh, and I was working with the team doing the count. So I said, okay, look, go find me for four seats. So we tracked down four seats, which was unannounced. We you know, did the numbers, we called up our sources, we went to the ground, uh, and we managed to find uh, uh, seats that were won by uh, Pakatan. So at 2.28 in the morning, Malaysia Kini was the first media to announce that the Pakatan Harapan government had what? So it was... Uh, it's quite a moment. Um, we, you know, it was quite a historical moment when we pressed the button. So um, uh, I was updating the sheet, so I kind of pressed the button. 
And then I went to the newsroom and said, 30 seconds, guys, it's going to be live. So everybody was staring at the streets, at the screens, and ding, ding, one, one, two. And, you know, um, family and friends were all over the country. And everybody was saying how the, how the mood changed that very moment. It was quite, uh, quite a moment. So at 2.28, we declared a, a change in government. And minutes later, all the mainstream media followed suit. So it was that kind of influence that Malaysia Kini had uh, you know, in, in, in difficult times. I think it's an interesting story. It started 20 years ago. And Stephen, my partner, and I, um, it was actually a few days after uh, Anwar was arrested, about a week or so after Anwar was arrested. And um, some people approached me to start an underground newspaper saying, hey, this whole reform thing is going on. You know, we need to get the word out. And at the time, I, I had come back from studying in Australia. And I said, look, an underground newspaper will not work. It will be very easily cl closed down. It's too difficult to get going. It's very easy to curtail. Why don't we do an online newspaper? Um, and, you know, it was very early days of the internet. It's still kind of dial-up modems, and nobody really heard about it. And Stephen was in uh, Bangkok at the time. But uh, so it took us about a year to get going. We raised funding and we started off with six people. Uh, and we, we, we launched in November 20th, 1999. So November next year will be our 20th uh, uh, anniversary. So uh, we just launched with six people and in a small office. But the mood in the country was such that there was such an appetite for, for independent uh, information. In Indonesia, across the Straits, we had Reformasi also going, the fall of, uh, of Suharto. So everybody thought that Malaysia would be next, but it took us 20 years to catch up to, to Indonesia. <laughs> it took us a long time. But um, there, was, there was such a mood that you know, we grew to about 100,000 readers overnight. Uh, and our idea was very simple. If we could publish the news quickly and fast, and be the first in news and be the most independent, then people will be forced to read Malaysia Kini. And the thesis was that if, the, if, if Malaysians had access to independent information, they will be able to make better electoral choices, and over time, we would see a more democratic um, Malaysia. So we went at it, uh, but it was a tough time. We got raided uh, by the police uh, you know, under Dr. Mahate, uh, although he had already pledged not to censor the internet with the multimedia super corridor. So we, we worked hard, and uh, there's a lot of ups and downs, a lot of challenges. But very quickly, we, we were able to become the voice of the spirit of um, reformacy or spirit of change spirit of, uh, you know, of, of contesting against corruption. Um, and, and we kind of did that with a small group of people. We had an investor, the Media Development Investment Fund in 2002, and they helped us grow. Uh, Mahate stepped down in 2003. Uh, and then after he was stepped down, um, he was in a way sidelined uh, by, the, by the new, by his successor. He was sidelined and uh, kept out in the media. And very interestingly, uh, we had an interview with Dr. Mahate, who was the first mainstream media to interview uh, Prime Minister uh, Mahate after he stepped down in 2003. So people were shocked. This was the guy who tried to shut down Malaysia Kini, but Malaysia Kini was actually you know, giving him a lot of um, a space. Uh, in fact, the same thing happened uh, uh, after uh, May 9th. The first uh, interview Najib, Najib Razak gave to a local media was at Malaysia Kini at our offices about three weeks after he lost the, the elections. So, um, you know, we've been able to build that rapport with, uh, you know, both sides of the government over the years. In 2002, in order to sustain our business, we went subscription. It was very, very challenging in the very, very early days to go subscription. But it was a kind of a crisis. We either had to close down or survive. 
and we asked ourselves a kind of a fundamental question. Uh, if Malaysia Kini closes, who will miss us? Who will be sad that we are gone? You know, who will, you know, who will want us to survive? And we thought that in the end of the day, it will be our readers. It won't be advertisers. It may not be donors. Donors will say, well, there will be other projects. You know, they, they, it is our core loyal readership who would in the end uh, support Malaysia Kini. We did a reader survey, but less than 1% of our readers said they'll pay for content. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, uh, sometimes you've sometimes you got to ignore the data and, and just go ahead with, with, with what you believe, right? Go ahead for what your passion is. And uh, we launched a subscription in 2002, and we were very disappointed. Uh, out of nearly 100,000 readers, only 1,000 subscribed. So we thought we would at least get five to 10,000. So it's quite a struggle, but you know, those days you couldn't even use your credit card online. You had to send a check or pay cash. So it's actually very tough to get things going. Um, but we built up over the years. We built up a very good subscription revenue over the years. It grew very fast, grew very steadily. And in 2008, uh, at the, uh, the second, the next election for Badawi, um, the ruling uh, BN lost half Malaysia, the whole of the West Coast. And incidentally, they lost in every urban center uh, across the country, uh, the BN lost. And when asked, you know, why, why did they lose so much, even Badawi admitted that it was, it was the internet uh, and, and Malaysia Kini was the only media online. So it, it showed, uh, showed the influence of the internet. Um, so it showed Malaysia Kini's influence and we grew a lot since 2008. Um, today we are about 100, over 100 staff. Uh, we publish in English, Malay, Chinese, Tamil. We have a video team. We have about, um, I think last month we had 8 million unique uh, visitors. Uh, on election night, our total uh, number of devices was 17 million uh, devices connected to us. So, you know, more than half the country was connected to Malaysia Kini. Uh, we make about 70% of our money on advertising and about 30% from subscription. So, it's been a quite a, a, a remarkable run. I've had a very good team to, you know, work hard and very passionate in what they do. Uh, you know, a lot of the old-timing staff are still there doing what they do. I think the, the real challenge now is going forward. What, what's the next game plan for Malaysia Kini? Um, after May 9, you know, the, the, the media has switched overnight. What media was owned by you know, Amno and the BN, uh, now do, even those media are now very independent. So even the Star, Belay Mail, New Straits Times, just about every media has now become you know, in a way what Malaysia Kini used to be, or you know, in, a, in a way what we, uh, we hope the media to be, which is to be independent. Our goal was to establish independent media in, in Malaysia. So you can't complain when everybody becomes independent and starts start to report like you, right? You can't complain when you're, in a way your mission is accomplished. But that forces us to re redefine ourselves and to rethink uh, what we are. So it's of course challenging. Uh, we will definitely stick to becoming independent media, but that itself won't be enough. How do you actually develop, uh, you know, going further? So we're launching an academy. We're growing our television. Uh, we're going to. We, uh, I'm very keen to go into movies. Uh, uh, you know, films. Because I think films carry a lot of um, uh, emotional power to move the debate on issues. Um, so there's a whole area that we can grow that we are focusing on. Um, so in a way, we it's become kind of a red ocean, and we have to redefine ourselves and grow. <coughs> Uh, to continue to be the kind of bastion of independent media. We're thinking of setting up a, like a Malaysia Kini Foundation, and in a way the foundation will also act as an anchor for Malaysia Kini going forward. Uh, 
in terms of lessons learned, I think the, the key thing for a media organization is to build, um, first of all, relevancy to your audience. Why are you relevant? Why do you, why do you exist? Why do the reader need you? I think the earlier discussion about audience is very important. So first of all is relevancy, and the second of all is trust. Uh, no matter what we do, we will always remain ind independent, we'll always remain ethical, we'll always do good journalism. Um, so to make sure that we stick to our core principles and trust, uh, builds that bridge to the, to the audience. And the third thing is to be a voice. We voice for your audience. We always stick very closely to our audience, and in a way we express the sentiments of our readers, sentiments of the angst of the public. Uh, and and that, that, in a way, gels the, the audience with you. It's not you, journalists and editors, and the audience, you one and the same. So like Malaysia Guinea, we think ourselves more like a social movement uh, rather than you know, a, a, a company reporting the news. So it's those things that actually uh, uh, shape the success of media today. And like uh, Alan mentioned, we, you know, we lost a case at the uh, Court of Appeal um, and the judge uh, no, um, made us pay a penalty of 350,000 ringgit. Um, but to our surprise, we, we asked for an appeal and we managed to raise that fund in 11 days. It took us just 11 days to raise $350,000 from our readers, which was amazing. We also we were surprised by the sheer um, you know, ability to gather support. So we're very thankful for that. Um, I think those are the core lessons. I think that if you, if you are relevant, if, and the readers trust you, and your voice from the readers, then I think the readers will support you in any way they can, and I think you'll be a successful media. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> hey, you have another one minute and 24 seconds. Tell us how you pay your journalists. You told us an interesting story. Editors get less. Yeah, um, we, we, um, at Malaysia Kini, um, our entry-level salaries are quite competitive. We pay, you know, probably a bit higher than market rates. But at the top level, we, we, we don't pay as much. So myself, Stephen, the top managers actually get, uh, you know, pretty much the same. And it's not, it, it's just, it just it's, a, it's, it's very tight between the bottom and the top. Um, so, you know, when we tell our Malaysia Kini staff, we, we tell them, look, come here and do it for passion. But when you leave, please ask for double or triple your, your, your salary because that's what you're worth. And most times, they do get at least double uh, what they're earning at Malaysia Kini uh, when, when they go. Uh, and there have been many cases of them leaving and coming back. So we always welcome them back to Malaysia Kini. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Okay, I, I just love this panel, okay? Because um, I've been hearing stories of courageousness, uh, creativity, um, bravery, you know, the, the power of journalism being practiced. You know, sometimes we are also caught up in the in the numbers and and the profitability and the disappearance of readers and and advertisers and and so on um, there is so much still happening you know everyone's saying where are those millennials they're over here you know here's uh, Davey talking about readers who are 18 from 18 years old to their 20s that's who everybody seems to be looking for and you found them uh, and um, there's um, Prem talking about the importance of, of being relevant and getting your readers to trust you and being brave enough to start. You know, many of the things uh, Malaysia Kini did over the years, like Magdalene, is just being bold enough, uh, you know, 
breaking out of what everybody else is doing and doing something different, going with your gut feel on something you think is right and, and, you, and you feel needs to be done and getting the people around you who believe it too. Um, so, um, Cheryl, I have to ask you, you work with these artists and filmmakers and so on, listening to these two guys, what would the artist and filmmaker do? What's the movie they're going to make? <laughs> Tell us. No, no cer certainly, uh, the, I, I, was, I was mentioning to Pramesh that as a student, uh, I was just reading about Malaysia Kini and how it started um, when I was doing the PhD, and I think it's a fantastic story that can be told, um, an inspiring story that can be told about, about <laughs> the value of media, but also the possibility of sustainability of media that's alternative, that's, that's not particularly profit-driven, and, and what changes it can do to society you know, on, on such a scale. So that is valuable as, a, as content for easily a documentary. Yeah. Documentary, mm. movie. movie. Same for Magdalene, of yeah, course. Sure. <laughs> okay, no questions. Raul has a question from the Philippines. Wonderful, Raul. Thank you for standing up and doing that. <laughs> Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Raul Dancel. I write for the Straits Times, but I'm based in Manila, the Philippines. Um, one, one particular trend I've observed in the Philippines is that, you know, I think uh, the most vicious way right now that journalists are censored is through organized online hate. You know, um, right now in the Philippines, you have like, you have like, uh, bloggers are often more influential than journalists in the Philippines, and these bloggers are usually take sides, right? And, and, and uh, they, they, easily, they easily mobilized uh, millions to drown out usually, uh, you know, like, uh, like in investigative journalists, for instance, when they, when they work on a story or post something online, they are often inundated with so much hate, so much vicious comments that you have situations at times like, I, I understand that at Reuters, they have had to hide two of the reporters working on, on stories about the drug killings in, in the Philippines in safe houses for a time. Mm. So that my, my, my question is, uh, and, and this works both ways, no? I, don't, I, I see the state sponsoring often uh, hate online, but there are also quarters outside the government, outside the state, politicians with agenda, also using this, this method to, to advance their agenda, I guess. Uh, my, my question is, uh, you know, as journalists, is there redress for us uh, uh, over this, 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 uh, this, this trend? Or should we just uh, dig deeper down the bunker and, you know, uh, is there legal redress, for instance? I, because I, in the Philippines, I also understand, uh, see that some are trying to use online libel laws to roll back against uh, online hate, but this, this really isn't going... Uh, isn't really going very far. So, for, for right now, I see like if you're a journalist, and w what happens usually is that journalists who I s who used to be very outspoken online, I see them often uh, tempering their comments online, or or maybe outrightly withdrawing uh, their their online presence. So, is there is there you know? There, so the, my question is: Is there a recourse for us? Great, thanks. Um, yeah, and just to, um, I guess, 
expand on uh, your statement in your question as well. A lot of the time, um, uh, the writers, the bloggers, and the journalists who who are being abused the most online are women, female journalists, especially when they write, even when they write issues as um, innocent or as apolitical as sports, they get abused a lot. So it's not just political stories, political issues. But, um, I, you know, I just say I just think that for every every generation, every period has its challenge, and um, online hate is also big right now in Indonesia, and it, it it's not just online. So online is just the gateway. So what would happen is that um, there are you know an, like literally army of people, groups of people who um, are out there looking for content. Uh, whether posted by the media, by media or by you know person individuals that they think are um, in, insulting religion or insulting their political uh, you know values or whatever their social values and they would screen cap them and then they would spread them in their you know circle of or their group or whatever and then um, often this would uh, lead to an actual attack an actual physical attack or assault. They would go and, you know, go to this. And then eventually they can also uh, report this person, whoever created the content, to the police. And the police oftentimes would go, you know, go along. Uh, like I said, I talked about the, the um, information and technology um, law and the defamation law. But, you know, again, uh, for me as, as a journalist and, and uh, uh, on, I guess, the media, a person uh, uh, who work for the media, um, that should not stop us from, from doing what we do. Because whatever the period is, like 20, 30 years ago, my senior, you know, veteran journalists who were doing their job in the Suharto time, they are also facing similar situation. In fact, one of them is here, Nezar, I think he's outside. Um, he was kidnapped by uh, the military at the time. Um, although he was an activist, not a journalist then. But, you know, what I'm saying is that we can, you know, the, of course, you have to think of what is, what do you want in life and whether that is part of the deal, the, you know, that you are willing to sacrifice. But to me, online hatred is, is probably less uh, dangerous than being kidnapped by special forces in the Suharto time. Um, Although, again, that might lead to physical attacks. But, you know, as long as we don't uh, defame people, we don't, you know, we don't lie in our reporting, uh, as long as we do things ethically, according to our code of ethics, I think, you know, we should just go, you know, we just, just continue. Thanks, David. Um, what recourse for journalists who come under attack? Yeah, I, I think online hate is, uh, is very tough to deal with. I think Cherian, uh, George wrote a book on, on, on hate speech, right? Mm -hmm. And how often it gets uh, weaponized and, and used. Um, I, I, I think definitely, you, you know, you, you, can, you know, can challenge the people who are trying to instigate this hate speech. But more importantly is to develop some sort of social movement analysis and ideology about how do you then, uh, in a way, create you know, uh, limit their access. You cannot eradicate totally this kind of mob rule online, mm -hmm. but how do you inoculate the wider population against, you know, smaller groups which are trying to create um, a mob rule and not allow them to expand? 
um, you know, trying to jail them and trying to put them all behind bars is not, it's not going to work. But partly it's winning, um, winning the battle also with the police and other state enforcement agencies to neutralize the use of state actors against um, journalists. And then partly is to have kind of an ideological competition to limit uh, this idea of you know, using hate against, against journalists. So how do we convince or at least split or create counter ideological positions to, to, to reduce or erode, uh, uh, limit the access of this mob rule online? I don't have an answer, but I think that's where we have to look at to create an answer. Another question, somebody? Frank, and then Emily. So Frank first, yes. Okay, uh, thank you very much first uh, for your sharings. Uh, I'm Frank Liu, uh, this year's fellow, AJ fellow. I'm from China. Uh, I have two questions for the panelists. Uh, first is about your relationship with government, and the second is about uh, your relationship with the younger generation of readers. Uh, so, uh, from my perspective, I found that uh, probably your media in your countries are not so conventional, traditional mainstream media, uh, but I would love to know how would you deal with your relationship with the government? Would you uh, receive some oppression from the government? Or how, and how do you gain the, gain the trust you know, from your readers by the same time? And uh, the second question is, I would love to know, can you share uh, by your from your work, how would you see the new younger generation of readers in your countries? They have some, what, what kind of some different um, interests they have towards the news uh, you covered, you report the issues you are covered. Um, thank you very much. Uh, in terms of working with our governments, uh, with the previous government, we've always tried to have a professional uh, relationship with the previous government. That was obviously difficult because of all the harassment. But nevertheless, we, you know, we did our best to in a way, give both sides of the stories. Um, part of Malaysia, some states like Penang and Selangor were, were governed by the opposition party. So, you know, we held the, the state governments to account, although they were in, held by one party, as well as the federal government held by the other party. So our readers could judge us on, on that basis. Um, so we, we, we basically want to have a professional relationship with the government, and through our professional reporting, we hope to gain their trust over time. Um, the second question was on... On younger readers. Younger readers. I think that's the biggest dilemma we face, is how to reach out to youngest re younger readers. We don't have an answer. We're not doing so well with the under 25 audience, so we need to come up with more creative ways to, to reach out to them. Um, I don't have the answer, but I think that's something that we need to work on. Uh, a lot of younger readers watch video, so we're investing a lot in terms of video news as opposed to text news. But that's just a start. Thanks. Uh, Cheryl, you work with young people every <laughs> single day. Yes. Why are they like that? <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, it's funny. Uh, I think just last week I asked my students, who among you, last week was the opening of our classes, who among you have held uh, a newspaper in the past, past week? Nah, past month? Nah. So basically the, the students um, um, 
are really um, following their news and are you going onto news websites? No, they really are getting their news on Facebook. And um, I think media in the Philippines are, try are, are trying to cope with this in the sense that, you know, uh, putting their content out there and making them more appealing to young people. The thing, though, that changes the dynamics is the possibility to really curate and select what they would read, right? So the, the very possibility of, of selecting what you read makes it really crucial. Um, so if I can choose um, whether, whether to, 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 to subscribe to this or not, or to read this or not, then, then, then you really need to be much more competitive. But I'm speaking here about students in my university, a private university institution, I'm talking here, but there's another bunch of millennials. I, in my research, I work with young people in slum communities, really low-income communities, and where do they get their news? So, um, in, in, in the research, there is free Facebook basics in the Philippines where, so if youth get their news on Facebook, but their access of Facebook is via free Facebook basics where you get the headlines, but once you click on the headline, you actually have to start paying for the content, right? So you see, you see the post, but once you want to click on an image, you also have to, it will tell you, now you will be, have to, you have to pay data charges. So the reality of that tells you Kids get the headline, but not the content. Right? So it, 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 it makes us think. I think this requires a lot more research, more, more systematic research on the relationship. But I think in a country like the Philippines, where a lot of your people are actually going on to news using free Facebook basics, you need to understand that demographic um, on how they consume news as well. Thank you. Um, go back to Devi for dealing with the government on some of the stories that you do. Or well, fortunately, the government is pretty much hands-off with the, with the press. Um, yeah, it has been like that, I guess, in the past uh, in two decades or so since Reformacy. Um, uh, of course, there are exceptions, you know, like in the conflict areas. But so we don't really have a relationship, whether it's positive or negative. So we haven't really had any kind of harassment or anything like that. Now, things may change because next year there's going to be an, ele an election and we don't know who's gonna win yet. Um, uh, so, and whoever, um, you know, if, if we have this current government, of course, it might be still the same, but if we have a, if we have a change of government, things might be, might, might change dramatically, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, have you taken the help of cybercrime or something? Yeah, well, I don't think there, there is such a, yeah, this is why I, I was talking about there is not really a, a way for us to pursue things. I mean, there, you could, but, you know, the it's just going to be too much of a hassle to pursue uh, that. So a lot of the time we just have to kind of, you know, accept it and, you know, just let it go. Because yeah. yesterday the, I was just uh, talking to Sri and all, uh, uh, Facebook must help us. Yeah. in uh, this abusement and all, yeah. rights and all. Yeah, but a, a lot of, I mean... Especially uh, for the women's channel, like, you and I'm also uh, sailing in the same boat. Yes. I also have a women's channel, it's in Gujarat. And the threats and all abuses come and... Yeah, there's a lot and, of rape threat yeah. as well for women. That's right. But, you know, yeah, then, but then again, I don't think the Indonesian uh, police um, or the, uh, there is an authority that can really deal with uh, cybercrime 
um, when we report this kind of uh, cases in a way that, that would really be uh, beneficial to us. It's, we're just gonna probably deal with a lot of paperwork, so we may end up having to pay, the, you know, getting some, you know, grease money. You know, so it's, you know, a lot of time we just have to accept Let's it. Let's hope Facebook should help us. Yes, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Emily, wait, Emily first. Hi, um, I'm Emily from South China Morning Post, and thank you for your speech. And I'm especially interested in what Ms. Devi just shared now, since um, what I uh, briefly shared this yesterday. Um, the, our newspaper is a hundred years old print newspaper that's turning into digital and appealing to wider readerships. And um, our um, readers are mostly expect professional and male. Mm. And one of the challenge we are seeing is that it's, um, we have an aging readership. And uh, sometimes we find it difficult to, found, to target and engage younger mm. uh, readers. So I'm very impressed um, by what Ms. Devi is sharing here. Since young women is, um, is some is a missing group that I've been trying to um, target, and I'm hoping you can share with us some of your tips. How do you find story for them, and how do you target them without stereotyping them? And also another difficulty is, is um, for us to engage them, um, millenniums. Um, you have shared um, some of our uh, friends here shared how they use Facebook to find them, but. Um, uh, as what I'm seeing in Hong Kong, I'm not sure whether this is the trend in other countries, but in Hong Kong, the millenniums are moving away from Facebook, and they regard it as something used by their grannies and, uh, and uh, something opened by their parents and forced them to take pictures, that, that kind of thing. So they, they kind of hate it, and, and they move away from Facebook to some other social media platforms, such as Snapchat, TikToks, that kind of... Um, platform that is really hard for us to reach. So, um, is there any tips for um, for us to to um, follow and learn from you? Thank you. Okay, thanks. Can I just take that other question too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hi, I'm Pauling. I'm from PR industry. I have a question from Pram for Pramesh from Malaysia Kini. Um, as we all know, it's alleged that the Singapore government has some degree of influence on the Singapore media scene here. So for Pramish case, if hypothetically, if you are a Singaporean and you'd like to set up a, Mal Singapore, a Malaysia kidney of sorts in Singapore, do you think it will survive 20 years or even 20 months? <laughs> the, the easy one first. Whenever I come to Singapore, I get asked this question. <laughs> um, I, I, we, I remember last night we were talking about, a bit about this uh, with Alan and others, right? I think the idea would be to set up something which kind of works in Singapore, not to set up, not to replicate Malaysia Kini directly here. Uh, I think you need to feel the pulse of what the Singaporeans really feel and come up with innovative, innovative ways to do it. It doesn't have to be a website, it doesn't have to be an app, but you have to resonate with what's the angst uh, here in the country. And, and work with that and build something up which is truly Singaporean um, and not a, a replication of something else out there. Uh, I think it's high time. I think 
that you know they, they, there's a there's a book on in inequality in Singapore, right? I, I saw that on the table mm. published by IPS. So there are a lot of issues here. So I think if you get it right, I think it'll last. Uh, you know, it'll last 20 years. So uh, I think it's up to Singaporeans to do it, and I believe Singaporeans can. Right. Thank you. Okay, back to you, uh, Davy. Yeah. How, tell us about your younger readers. Mm. How you're engaging them too? Mm. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, so um, that problem um, with um, news media, um, um, I guess a general mainstream news media only being read by male and older male, it's not just in your country, but also in Indonesia. In fact, I think I just read a survey that shows that uh, of most of the mainstream media that we have, like Kompas Tempo, Jakarta Post, and all this other uh, main uh, you know, largest um, media in Indonesia, they are read mostly by men, like women only make up 15% or something, which is a shock for me. Um, so I think, like, uh, if you've seen my presentation earlier, you cannot blame the women, right? Because a lot of the framing is still very masculine. And so I think this is a very uh, fundamental problem. Like, perhaps just looking back at the way uh, some of the issues are being covered, are being, uh, you know, played in, in your media, in your publication. Maybe there's too much, you know, maybe the framing is just not friendly to women. Maybe the language or maybe the issues are just not impacting women. So, um, so I guess content is one. Uh, if you want to aim for women and younger women, and even men, if younger men, um, but in this case, I guess I'm talking about the women, maybe start covering issues that are really, you know, um, that really make impact on them. For us, a lot of it's about sexuality, um, uh, but not in the way that women's media are doing it, you know. It's not about sex, but it's about the way, uh, about, you know, body image issues and things like that. And even um, things like uh, pop culture, the coverage of movies and things like that, you can, you can see the, the winds are blowing the other way now. As you can see from some of the movies like um, Wonder, Wonder Women, you know, and all these other movies, there is a kind of, feminist um, awakening and uh, a lot of this you know mainstream media have to kind of take that into consideration in order to get the younger readers um, as for social media uh, as for how to engage the Millennials um, uh, I, I agree Facebook is getting old um, and uh, and I think that's one of the channels that that is like the the least engaging for us. Although we are still engaging them, but that's the least of all them. Of all them, Twitter works for us, but also Instagram. But on Instagram, uh, we do a lot of Insta um, infograph. So um, and infographs really um, uh, make a lot of difference because Instagram is a very audio, uh, is a very visual um, platform. So and you do want to still give a value-added content or, or post on your Instagram. So we do a lot of infograph. Uh, like one of them uh, that was that become very viral recently is this infograph on signs that you are in an abusive relationship or a toxic relationship. There's like just one, two, three, four, five, you know, picture, attractive pictures and all this stuff. Other than that, you can also start to, um, you know, explore other uh, channels, other platforms. Uh, in Indonesia, Line is pretty big. In fact, some uh, major publications like Femina in Indonesia, which is the largest uh, women's uh, magazine, 
um, they are actually very small. They don't. They almost don't have a presence uh, on on internet, but they are big online. Um, so I don't know what it is in your uh, country, in your region. There might be something else. Line is uh, kind of like Snapchat. Oh. I'm. I don't know. I've actually not. <laughs> yeah. So, but but apparently it's big uh, among the younger readers. So yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, Sana. Hi, I'm Sana from Pakistan. Thank you so much for your uh, sharing your experiences. Uh, since we are all struggling to, you know, learn how to engage with the younger audience, I would like to ask Jarel, since she mentioned about the trans media and uh, using different kinds of uh, media. So, uh, do you like? Can you share how how did it help to? Did it? I mean, did it help to sh uh, engage the young audiences? Did it help with the movies and? Uh, you said it's, you know, with the artwork and everything. Thank you. Can I take the lighters? Hi, I am Lighter from Malaysia. So I have two questions. One is, we has a, a, we has a lot of media law, like the communication and the media law and also the sedition law to control the media, coverage and freedom. May I know what is the strategy you take to overcome this kind of the challenge? And the second question for the Malaysia Guinea. Uh, after the midnight changed the new government, then the Malaysia Guinea looked like from the independent media to the mainstream media. So can you tell me how, uh, how do you maintain your independence and you just monitor the new government? Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, Definitely, we, are, we, we continue to report both sides of the story, both uh, you know, the government's voice and also the voice of the uh, opposition. Um, in fact, I think we've given a, a lot of coverage to uh, Najib Razak, AMNO, and other opposition forces, as well as giving voice to a lot of civil society uh, and their views. For example, recently, uh, Anwar Ibrahim uh, announced running in a by-election in Port Dixon, and there were a lot of uh, you know, uh, uh, complaints about that. In Malaysia so if you read if you read Malaysia Kini more you know from a lot of it you will see that in fact we are being pretty balanced um, it, it is difficult to differentiate it's something that differentiation and trust comes over time uh, it's hard to see it on a day-to-day -day basis uh, you know but I think over time the trust that people have we will we will make sure that we will maintain it and we will show that we are we can hold the current government uh, accountable So um, one of the examples that I've shown is uh, an initiative from the Philippine Center for Investigative Journalism, the Sikian Project, which is a, uh, a children's book project. But apart from this, the PCIJ, or Philippine Center for Investigative Journalism, is working on a lot of, the, a lot of their many investigative pieces. So these are something that one of 10 pages that a young person would not normally read, but they would now collaborate with an artist. So the book author is just one, but they also have several other projects. One other one is a podcast. So a couple of others are films, for example, with documentary filmmakers. So they try to take a, a well-researched story um, um, that's done by their journalists and then package that into different other forms that can be perhaps uh, more palatable or easily digestible by different kinds of audiences, especially millennials. I guess one thing uh, which, which reminded me from a question earlier in the morning What's not really tapped is the power of radio, um, uh, especially in, in, in our rural communities. Um, radio is still quite relevant, especially in the form of drama too, right? So I'm seeing its resurgence in, in the context of drama. And so uh, 
if, if um, dramatization of content from investigative journalistic pieces can be rendered in podcasts or can be rendered in a children's book, it could also be rendered in the form of a radio drama and then contemporize it just to insinuate or instigate more conversations about particular issues. Thank you very much. No more questions? Oh, one last question from... Um, it's from Magdalene. Uh, I was just wondering about the line between activism and journalism. Do you often get asked that because like, even we're told to be aware that a journalist is not supposed to be an activist, you know, like things like that. And do a lot of audiences ask you, oh, this, this just, you know, like those feminists, <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, another story, you know, do you then get questions on your credibility of what you do? And also, like, uh, you have, like, uh, progressed, built a huge audience, but uh, why have you had problems monetizing all that traffic that comes? Because it's five years, right, since you started? Like, you have a huge following, but why no money? Thank you. Thank you, Zara. That's a good question to wrap up this session, and I'll let, but I'll let all my panelists here uh, take this. Start with uh, Davy. Can activists be journalists? Can journalists be activists? Where's the line? And five years already, why no money? Yeah. <laughs> I'll answer the, first, the second <laughs> one first. Um, five years, um, Hera and I are still, still have our day job. We do consultancy work. So we have not been able to really focus on this because we have not been able to, have, uh, to get investment, although we are in the process of getting investment. So five years we cannot monetize from advertising because compared to, in order for you to make money from advertising, you have to have a lot of eyeballs. Like, you know, we're talking about millions of eyeballs every day. We're, we're not there yet. So we cannot rely on advertising. But we have been monetizing. We have been monetizing from other things, from, from book publication, from shop, from uh, events, and from the consultancy part of our, uh, of our company. So yes, monetizing, but not in a, in a traditional uh, you know, media uh, way. Um, on activism and journalism, now uh, we come, uh, we uh, see ourselves as journalism with a cause. So we come uh, not from the typical neutral position of um, the you know mainstream news media would be. We come from a position where w we are uh, feminists and we uh, look at things from the feminist perspective. Of course, it doesn't. This doesn't mean that all of our content is you know very angry and all this stuff. We we write about movies. We write about things. But you know there is. That lens that we, you know, that uh, through which we perceive things or we cover our issues, and um, the other thing also, um, um, we are. I, I uh, on top of that, we are journalists, so we still, you know, we cover both sides. We are impartial when we write. But of course, at the end of the day, we are on the side of gender equality. So that is the biggest difference for us. When, when people ask me whether I'm a journalist or activist, I, I just say I'm a journalist, but I have, you know, you would say a cause, yeah. Thanks. In, in the Philippines, this is a, this is a really contentious um, um, issue. But I think 
many of the journalists in the Philippines just want to really come to the bottom of facts, right? But sometimes um, in, in, the pr in the process of presentation of facts, these also become the basis for mobilization. And so they are also implicated in the entire activism process as what they, whatever they report automatically becomes a jump of point for many of the activists to act on. So um, I think it's, a, it's really a blurry line that um, uh, specific journalists have different positions on, on this. So Prem, you were an activist before you started Malaysia Kini, so tell us. Yeah, I, I think as an activist, you form alliances, you work with people who are like-minded towards a, a goal that you want to achieve. You try to have influence, you try to you know, persuade people of a certain position and you get laws changed or you know, find, uh, you know, meet your goal. Um, as, a, as a journalist, your, your, your higher goal is the truth. You're a storyteller. Your idea is that you know I'm going to tell the stories that that matter, uh, and people are then going to you know feel for those stories, right? So you you take a you, you form different types of alliances or things. You 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 your one guiding uh, objective is the truth, and, and and the activism is is there because you have to tell the truth um, to power. You have to you have to show the truth and and shine the mirror up to those who are most powerful. Mm. So you have to have a, a heart of an activist but the intellectual center of a journalist. Great, thank you. So can I ask everyone to join me in thanking this wonderful panel? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen, Devi, Cheryl, and Prem. Um, the title of this panel was, I admit, quite lofty, but the issues and the realities that the panel has highlighted are anything but. So certainly they've given us a lot of food for thought, and now we're just going to give you food for your stomach one last time. So tea is outside. Um, please reconvene at 3.30. Thank you. <laughs>